Many years ago, in fact, it's probably been uh, about 22, 23 years ago, while I was pastoring in Elyria, Ohio, I had received a call from a church in Athens, Alabama. The chairman of the pulpit committee had contacted me. I had a former member uh, in, when I was pastoring in Alabama who had a daughter who was a member of this church, and she had recommended me to the church as being a candidate for uh, being the next pastor of that church. And so uh, uh, the way this kind of works is churches formulate a pulpit committee and so they receive resumes, they go through the resumes, they interview prospective candidates, go and listen to them preach, interview some more, and finally they narrow it down to one person and then bring that person before the church in a view of a call. And so uh, we had been talking uh, back and forth by way of phone, and then finally the committee said, you know, we would like to actually personally meet you and your wife. So they traveled to Cincinnati, Ohio, and they wanted to hear me preach, so I have a friend who was a pastor in Cincinnati, and so I scheduled to preach there for them, and we would meet with the committee after that service. And so during that service, um, you know, the Lord kind of moved that day, and, and several people came forward during the invitation. One young lady gave her life to Christ, and uh, there were some other uh, commitments that were made. And so the committee invited me after that experience uh, to come to Athens and to uh, look at the community, look at the schools, so on and so forth, which I was really kind of familiar with the, the area because the church I had pastored in Alabama was only about 45 miles uh, from Athens to begin with. So when the committee member picked me up at the airport, he, said, he made this statement to me. He says, you know what? When you're in Cincinnati, before the service started, I began praying that if you are the person that we ought to consider to be our next pastor, that someone would get saved at the end of the, by the end of the service. And of course that happened. And so he looked at me and says, I believe that you're to be our next pastor. So I spent time uh, for two days there and I met with the committee on a couple of occasions while I was there. And so I've been praying about this and what I should do. And um, again, I spent time just kind of weighing this and seeking God's heart, seeking God's will. Was I ready to make that move? And so on and so forth. And I really believe that, you know, okay, this must be of God, right? So it seems as though God has opened this door. It's not one that I forced open. I didn't go seeking somebody. I was just recommended. So the week after I returned from Athens, I received a letter from the chairman of the public committee, and basically the letter said, in essence, um, hey, glad to meet you. We've had some great time together, but we feel like we're moving in a different direction. In other words, door shut. In fact, the door was slammed shut. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody slam a door in your face or if you've ever had somebody slam a door in your face. It's really not a pleasant experience, right? You think God's moving you in one direction and you think all lights are green and, and God's moving you through that door that he seems to have opened up and then all of a sudden at the last second, it just slams shut right in your face. And so I was kind of taken back by that and... and uh, you know, just thinking, well, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm not sure really what's going on here. And so then it was like um, several months after that, that the um, public committee from this church contacted me. And so we conversed back and forth by way of phone. I preached for the committee at First Baptist Church in Heath, which is where uh, I was saved and I was ordained and uh, really where I grew up in, in Newark. And uh, so after I preached for the committee, I, I found out that 
So that following week, someone from the committee, I think it was Jay, <laughs> who called me, and he was supposed to say to me, you know, um, we really enjoyed our time together, but we really feel like we need to move in a different direction. But by the time we ended that conversation, uh, I ended up meeting with the committee again, and that was over 20 years ago, and here, here I am still here in this church. And so what seemed to have been a door that was going to be shut uh, is one that God had opened. And so one of the things that brings comfort to me in this passage concerning this church is Jesus says, I am the one who opens and shuts doors. If I open a door, it's going to be open. If I shut a door, it's going to be shut. You can try to kick the door in. You can try to force your way in. But if you're going to do that, you're going to do that against my will. Open and closed doors are a part of life. Perhaps you've experienced a few of your own. You just knew you were about to get that raise, but it never came through. You just knew you were going to get that promotion, but it was given to somebody else. You just knew that you were going to get that house, that you, it was your dream house, but somebody outbid you. Or you just knew, you know, you, you were going to get that car, but you didn't get it. Or into that school, you didn't make it. I'm not saying it's closed because you were living in sin. I'm not saying it's, it's closed because you're in some way, your heart is, you know, against God or whatever, or you're, you're being selfish in some way. There are certain doors that open and certain doors that shut that no one can explain, right? So I wasn't asking God for an explanation about open and closed doors, but oftentimes we think those things, right? At least it come across my mind. It's like, Lord, why did it seem like it was just like green light, green light, green light, all of a sudden red light, right? At that? Why did you put me through that whole process just to shut the door in my face? And, and probably you've had some of those experiences in your life, and you just kind of step back and you start talking to the Lord, and you're trying to figure out what went wrong. The fact is, life is about learning and growing. Life is about falling and getting back up. It's about forgiving and forgetting. It's about accepting and going on. It's all about open and closed doors. And one of the reasons why I love this letter to the church at Philadelphia is because it deals with the issue of open and closed doors. So let's take a little bit of time and kind of assess what Jesus is saying to this church. Again, this is only one of two churches that Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. He has everything positive, but he's going to deal with this issue of opening and closed doors. And so uh, here's my first point in this, in, in this message, is that Jesus purchased the right to close doors or to open doors. In this case, he's talking about open doors. But he has, he has purchased the right, right. He says, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. He purchased the right for that to happen. So as you, he introduces himself to this church, he says, these are the words of him who is holy and true and holds the keys of David, or the key of David, singular. He is holy. The word holy means to be a cut above. It... Um, God in his holiness means that he is separate, he is unique, he is distinct, that there is no one above him. God alone possesses absolute holiness. The Bible says in Hebrews about Jesus, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted, and above the heavens. So when Isaiah, for example, back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 6 uh, he, the, the king has died. The prophet Isaiah goes into the temple. He's mourning the, the loss of a king. 
And he says he saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling up the temple, and the seraphim were flying around, each having six wings, and they're covering their face, and they're flying, and they're covering their feet, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the same Jesus. Listen, Jesus is God, Father, Holy Spirit, one God, and three essence, Jesus is holiness. He is beyond and outside of us. And so when Isaiah heard that voice of God and he saw and he experienced what was happening, he says, oh God, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Like I'm about to be obliterated, man. I, I, I can't even stand in the presence of holiness. So here are the angelic beings whom God created in his holy presence and yet God's holiness is so holy that they have to cover themselves. And so Isaiah cries out to God, and the Bible says that an angel took a tongs and took a coal from the, from the brazen altar and touched the lips of Isaiah, and Isaiah was cleansed, and then Isaiah cried out, when God cried out in a voice, who will go for me? Who will I send forth? And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. So when you come into contact with God's holiness, we feel so small, we feel so insignificant, but yet God has included us in his plans for humanity, for the world, for eternity. Again, God did not create you for time. He created you for eternity. And each and every one of us are unique and special and gifted and talented, and, and, and we are the object of God's affection. And so God cleansed us through our relationship with Jesus Christ where he he claimed and proclaimed holiness over us through Christ as we are enveloped in the holiness of Jesus. And now we call out to God and say, God, send me. God, I want you to open up doors. I want you to allow me to walk through doors that I might touch the hearts and the lives of those who need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the one. He's the one who purchased the right out of his holiness to open and close door. It says he is true. Holiness describes what Jesus is. Truth emphasizes what Jesus does. To be true means to be genuine. You're not a copy of something else. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father except by me. And so Jesus was a, wasn't a teacher who came to reveal truth. He wasn't just a prophet who came to proclaim truth. Jesus was in human flesh. He is truth. He is truth. And so there's no truth outside of Christ. He is the personification of truth. And so if Jesus opens a door, there's a reason why. If he closes a door, there is a reason why. But here's the key. Can you trust him enough to do that, to allow him to open and close doors without explanation? See, sometimes God shuts a door on us and we, want to, we demand that God explain why that door was shut. Sometimes there is no explanation given. In fact, oftentimes, God does not explain himself. But notice the key here. He has the key of David out of Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. Just to kind of give you the backdrop, Judah had been invaded. That was the southern part of Israel. Isaiah had warned them about this, but the Jewish leaders were trusting in Egypt to deliver them from their enemies rather than God himself. And so there was a person who, whose name was Shabana, Shebna, who was really using his office 
not for the good of the people or the nation, but for his own private gain. God understood that, so he took him off you know, his lofty throne, took him out of office, and he replaced him with a man whose name was Eliakim. And Eliakim is a picture of Christ, a dependable administrator over the affairs of God. And notice a key. A key represents authority. A key represents authority. Whoever holds the keys are in control. Now, in Old Testament times, there were basically only three things that were locked. Um, The linen closet was locked because people would try to steal clothing. Um, The kitchen was locked because people would try to steal food. The treasure was locked so that no one could steal money. And so to have the key means you had all the authority. For example, you have a key to your vehicle, right? means you have authority over that vehicle. I just can't come out and take your vehicle away from you. I don't have a key to your vehicle. I have no authority over that vehicle. You have a key to your house. Why do you have a key to your house? Because you're keeping everybody out who should not be in there. And so you have the authority over that household because you hold the key. And so what Jesus is saying to this church and what he is saying to you and I, this is very important, is that Jesus is the one who holds all the authority, who holds all the power, who holds all the truth, who is holy beyond our, even our, our, our wildest imagination. So therefore, if Jesus is going to open a door, it's because he wants the door open. If Jesus chooses to shut a door, it's because that door needs to be shut. So for example, if you're counting on that promotion at work, and you're praying, and you're in line with God, and you think this is what God wants for you, and all of a sudden that promotion is given to somebody else, how do we respond to those situations in our lives? Right? We are angry. We are frustrated. We are questioning God. And, and so Satan, then ta- you know, he kind of comes in the side door and says, you know, if God really cared about you, if, if God really wanted to honor you, it, you know, you do so much for him, and he's not opening this door for you, and why is he shutting that door? And so we, we, we go through the questions, and we're demanding God to explain himself. But if I'm really surrendering, and this is the key word, if I'm really surrendering my life under the lordship of Jesus, then I will accept the closed doors that he puts in my pathway, and I'll accept the open doors that he puts in my pathway without explanation. I may not understand it. It may puzzle me, but I believe that he has what is best for me and for you in his his grasp. Remember, the Bible says that God is the potter, we're the clay. You ever watch somebody work clay on a potter's wheel? They bend it and mold it and shape it, and so the Bible says that it is the will of God to conform us to the image of Christ. So if God is opening and shutting doors, it's a means by which the potter is forming and fashioning the clay into the image of Jesus. Again, we may not understand why. We may not understand the timing of it all. We may not understand a lot of things, but we know that we are hands in the hands of the potter and that whatever it is he's opening and shutting, it's for our benefit and for our good. Several years ago, while serving as a missionary in, the, in our International Mission Board, um, there was a woman whose name was Lynette Thompson, and she provided some very insightful truth about trusting God. Uh, she was about to go out into an area of uh, South Africa, or an area of Africa that was very volatile, and so um, someone, people would regularly approach, you know, oftentimes when our missionaries go out, they go to churches and share about where they're going and so on and so forth. 
And somebody, people would come up to her all the time and say, well, I guess you really have to trust in God's protection to be willing to go to that area of, of, the, of the world. I want you to listen very closely to where her response was. Here's how she answers the question. She says, I can show you the grave of a 15-year-old missionary's child who died of hepatitis. I can show you the grave of a four-year-old missionary child who died of malaria. If my trust were in God's protection, my trust would crumble under such circumstances. My trust in God in the belief in God in the belief that he has all control and that whatever happens will happen for his glory. And what she was saying in essence is listen. Shut open shut death life all of it in the hands of my heavenly father. I'm trusting in him that he knows best whatever happens happens and I just know that I'm in his hands and he will make sure that it all unfolds in order for his glory to be shown. And so Jesus purchased this right to open doors, to shut doors. And secondly, you'll note that Jesus placed the responsibility of this open door into our hands. Jesus gives opportunities for us. The door of opportunity, as he describes, is a special gift, it's a special privilege uh, that is bestowed upon the church. You'll notice what it says in um, verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. I see you've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The door of opportunity. You know, sometimes if, you've, if you watch athletics, uh, you know, uh, sports events, Someone, sometimes you'll hear sportscasters say, man, that person is just in the zone. And what that means is, like the quarterback, I mean, like he's hitting every pass. I mean, it's just like he's in the zone. He can't miss a pass. He's hitting his tight ends. You know, his receivers just like spot on over and over again. And so whatever sporting event might be, when you're in the zone, it's just like, man, everything just seems to be coming natural. Everything just seems to be happening for you and not against you. And so, um, yeah, when you're in the zone, this is kind of what, what an open door is. An open door is like God's getting you in the zone. He wants you to, he wants you to move through this open door because he has, so doors, what, what do open and closed doors represent to us? Either uh, an open door means I have access to something I would not have access to. A closed door means I'm prevented from accessing what it is I want to access. So when God opens up a door, he's inviting us to, to come through that door. Remember, Jesus purchased the right to open the door. He says, if I open the door, no one can shut it. I want you to go through it because I want you to experience what is on the other side. Open doors. How do we understand where God's doors are opening? This is one of the reasons why we're having 21 days of prayer and fasting. If you want to understand God's open doors... It comes out of relationship. It comes out of intimacy. It comes out of the prayer closet. It comes out of spending time with God and getting yourself in tune with the Holy Spirit. And so we as a church, we want to know, God, what doors are you opening for us? What doors do you want us to march through? Where do you want us to serve? How do you want us to serve? How do you want us to engage in our community? How do you want us to take the gospel to the community around us? 
And so sometimes when you, you know, you're trying to move forward and it just seems like nothing's working out and you're like not in the zone and things just don't seem to be happening, it's time to step back and pause. In the Old Testament, it's called Selah. It's It's time to sit back and pause and reflect. And so we're spending as a church 21 days starting on September the 18th. Well, actually, we'll start before then, that, that Sunday the uh, 8th or 15th, and uh, we're going to give you a devotional, 21-day devotional. What do you, when you say fasting, everybody says, well, well I, I don't, I don't, I've never fasted before. We're going to talk about it, explain it to you. It doesn't have to be a food fast. For me, I'm fasting for 21 days from all media, social media and anything otherwise. 21 days, no social media. No TV, no radio, no nothing. Why would I do that? Because I just want to hear from God. Right? I don't want any interference in my mind. I don't want anything interfering in my spirit. I just want to hear from God. And so when you remove all of the distractions from within you, you have more of a clear sense of God's Holy Spirit speaking to you. Now, whatever you fast from might be different from you. But it is something that you're willing to release, to give up for a specific period of time because you have a hunger and a thirst and a desire to hear from the Holy Spirit of God. And on Wednesday nights, we're going to start, you know, uh, uh, Wednesday night prayer meetings. Basically, there's going to be a short time of worship, about 10 minutes, 20-minute teaching. We're going to spend a half an hour in prayer. Now, some of you say, well, I'm not, I don't like, I don't feel comfortable praying Listen, you don't have to pray out loud if you don't want to. You don't have to pray in a group. You can pray by yourself, or you can pray in a group. As you know, Wednesday nights, we also hold open for those who are in search of, you know, needing a touch from God, healing from God, whether it be physically or spiritually or in your soul or whatever it might be. We'll have our team here. They'll be willing to pray for people. But if you come, we're going to give you prayer prompters, right? So we're going to give you kind of a booklet. Say, you want to pray by yourself. That's great. So we're going to list out like things like, you know, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling with this or this or this, here's some verses to pray. We want to teach you how to pray scripture back to God. One of the most powerful and effective ways you can pray is to pray scripture back to the Lord. He's the author of it, and he, he is the one who um, speaks to us through it. One of the primary ways that God speaks to us is through his word, and so why not pray that back? People say to me all the time, you know, Pastor, I pray, but I, I, I feel like I'm stuck in a rut, or I feel like, you know, I'm saying the same things over and over again. Well, one of the beautiful ways to get out of that rut and to become a more effective, powerful prayer is to learn how to pray Scripture. So we're going to spend um, eight weeks just on the subject of prayer here on Sunday mornings beginning September the 8th. So I ask you the question, if, if there's a question you have about prayer, something you've always just like just burning to ask God about prayer, write it on your connection card, throw it in the basket. I'm going to try to cover every single topic or question that people submit. And I've already had several questions submitted to me, and I'm already starting incorporating those into the messages because I want to try to answer all of your questions. And so this is a, a door of opportunity that God swings open for us and he says to this church, man, your, your people have little strength. In other words, they're not big, but they're powerful, right? They're keeping God's word. They're searching God's heart. And they're not questioning his power and his wisdom and his love. They're wanting to move forward and to hear from the Lord. 
a, a door of opportunity. Sometimes people ask me the question, well, pastor, um, you know, if I'm searching for a, a door, how do I know if God's opening up a door for me or not? How do I discern God's voice? So let me give you an example out of the Old Testament. Abraham. Everybody remember Abraham? So God calls Abraham out of Ur of Chaldea. God's going to establish a nation called the nation of Israel through the, um, the generations coming out of Abraham and Sarah's life, right? So they have a son, Isaac. He's the first one. Uh, well, Ishmael came, but that was a mistake. All right, so Isaac was the promised son that God gave to them. It took him a long time to get the promised son. Sarah has died. Isaac is not married yet. Abraham wants to find him a wife. And so Abraham was living among the Canaanites, and he didn't want to have a wife out from among the Canaanites, not because he didn't like the Canaanites, but he wanted somebody out of his own homeland out of, uh, out of, um, that would spiritually align themselves with the covenant of God that he established between Abraham and himself. And so he calls for his servant, Eliezer, and he says to him, listen, I want you to go back to my, my people and, and, uh, where God has established covenant, and I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac and bring her back to us. And so at this time... <laughs> Remember that uh, for Isaac, he couldn't la- log on to Match.com or eHarmony.com, and there, you know there's no speed dating uh, activities that went on. And that day and time, marriages were arranged by the parents, right? So your parent, you know, parents got together and said, "Hey, we kind of like your kid, and they like we like your kid, and hey, let's arrange their marriage." So that's the way it happened back in that day and time. And uh, having two daughters, I, I kind of like that arrangement where I get to pick uh, who is going to be uh, my my daughter's next husband. So, uh, but anyways, that, I didn't get that opportunity, but, but God gave us two great son-in-laws. And so Eliezer sets out. We don't know how many cities he went through um, in, back in, the, in um, Abraham's homeland, but he came to Nahor, and um, he says to himself, okay, God, I'm trying to discern here who's the next woman for Isaac. So he says, God, I'm going to go outside the city, and I'm going to sit at the well. This is where everybody came to water them, you know, get, collect water, water their animals. He said, I'm going to sit by the well, and the first woman who comes up and says, hey, could I get you something to drink? And I will say to her, well, why, yes. And if she offers water to me and to water my camels, she's it. And so uh, that's exactly what it is. He's sitting outside the city, and here comes a woman, and her name's Rebecca. And Rebecca comes up, and she asks Eleazar, hey, uh, you like it? May I draw some water from the well? And may I water your camels also? Now think about this. If he had 10 camels, it takes about 30 gallons to, to water a camel. That's like 300 gallons of water. I don't know how many camels he had with him, but I'm sure he had an entourage with him. And so here was a young lady, and, she, and so Eliezer says to her, I know this is going to sound a little weird, but back in my homeland, I have a master who is in covenant with God, and he's a very, he's a very handsome man, and uh, he's wealthy, he, he's, he's, he's single, and, and he's looking for a wife, and I believe that God has led me to you. Now, how would you respond? <laughs> Rebecca says, well, um, this sounds a little weird. Let's go talk to my parents. So they went back and talked to her parents, and so Eliezer gave, her this, gave them the same story. 
about what was going on and, and who he was representing. And so, now watch this. The parents said to their daughter, it seems to be that there is a door that is open for you, but whether or not you walk through it, it's your decision. And what God says to us is, there seems to be a door that I'm opening for you, but if you're going to walk through it, it's your decision. I'll not force you through the door. I'll not kick you through the door. I'll not pull you through the door. You must make the decision as to whether or not you're going to walk through the door. And so, long story short, she goes back with Eliezer. She marries Isaac, and the rest is history. In the New Testament, God normally speaks in four ways. Not limited to this, but four primary ways. Prayer, the word of God, other believers, and circumstances. You find all four of those in the story I just gave you. Rebecca has God's words that have come out of the mouth of Eleazar, and she has other believers, that is her parents, who listen to the story, and they are in agreement. She has circumstances, you know, watering the camels. I mean, who, who would have thought she'd come out and say, not only I'm going to give you water, I'm going to give water to your camels. And she has prayer. I saw, certainly she's praying. Eleazar is praying about whether or not to do this. And so it all lined up. She walked through the open door of history, and she became a part of the lineage through whom the Messiah, Jesus, would come. Doors of opportunity. We have to look for those in our lives. Sometimes we want to pray Here's how we pray. I'm praying, God, answer. Prayer, answer. Prayer, answer. Prayer, answer. God, I answer now. Answer now. Answer now. That's usually not how God operates. Now watch this. If, if I'm demanding an answer like that, and we don't get the answer we want, oftentimes we become very inconsistent and self-reliant. When was the last time that you said to somebody, God answered my prayer, and he said no? We don't consider that an answer, right? We only consider it answered prayer when God says yes. Yeah, yeah, you do that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's, go for that. But when God answers no, we think, well, that's not an answer. Sure, it's an answer. God has shut the door. And so we call yes answered prayer, but also no is answered prayer and um, how many times has God said no and clearly spoken to me, and I didn't get what I wanted, so what happens is I just start praying smaller prayers when God wants us to pray bigger prayers. How much do we limit God with the littleness of our prayers? When God wants to give open doors of opportunity, oftentimes they are they're audacious, big doors of opportunity that's going to require two things, surrender and faith. And the question is, am I, going to, and am I going to walk through that door? I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to find out there are so, so many things that God wanted to supply for us through doors of opportunity, but we failed to ask for those things or we failed to walk through those doors of opportunity and we missed out on what could have been and should have been simply because we were afraid to step through. I don't want to be that person, right? So during the 21 days of prayer and fasting, 
Now, I pray that God gives us this huge, magnanimous door that we sit back as a church, because we're not a real big church, and we sit back and say, God, there ain't no way, no way we could ever do that where that could ever happen. And God says, Open, listen, walk through the door, surrender in faith, and watch what I can do. Weak on the amens, but we're, we're moving on. Door of obligation. Thank you. <laughs> the next second door is the door of obligation. And that we, we are obligated to walk through some doors. How do you know when a door is open? Um, one of the things I jotted down, and this is not on your outline. And you, you can have these. Um, so I, I just thought about this, and I thought, you know what? You know, Jesus, if he's opened the door, we're obligated to go through it. He didn't open it so that we could stand there and stare at what's on the other side or what, what might be on the other side. He wants us to walk through the door and lay hold of what he's opened the door for. And so how do we know there is an open door? Here's some things that I jotted down. Number one is you are thinking about how you can honor God and something comes to your mind. You're thinking about how you can honor God and something comes to your mind. That could very well be an open door that God's opening up for you. Number two, upon exploration or inquiry, the idea seems feasible. I didn't say it was going to be easy. I just said it seems feasible. It may require a huge step of faith. I'll, I'll post these in, later, and you, so I'm going to move through them. Number three, you have a sense of peace about this open door. Listen, peace is the umpire when it comes to the will of God. There's just going to be, listen, it, what is facing you might be fearful. It, it might be like overwhelming, but deep down inside, the spirit of God is just giving you this underlying sense of peace. Like, man, go for it. I remember when God called me into ministry and I'm like, God, why in the world are you calling me? I am in no way the person who should be a public speaker. I don't have the skills. I don't have this. I, I had a thousand excuses. I hated public speaking. I loathe public speaking. Every night I had to do it in school, it just made me ill. And I thought, God, you, you are making a huge, huge mistake. But in spite of that, and, and a little bit of hesitancy on my part, is that there was just this overwhelming underlying sense of peace that this is what, this is the door I'm opening for you. I really want you to go through. Number four, you sense God would be pleased if you walked through that door. You sense he would be pleased. You just kind of sense pleasure in heaven. Number five, you seek godly counsel who agrees. It's not that you seek out a person who's just going to agree with you. You share this with somebody, and their godly counsel is, I believe that's the door God's open for you. So what my wife and I, when, we, when I was called to ministry, I, I was, we were struggling with this, and I was struggling. Actually, she knew before I did. And so, I, I, you know, my pastor was Dr. Crawford, and Dr. Crawford was like Moses, man. He had the all white hair, and, and like, he was 100 years old. And so I thought, man, this, nobody's got more wisdom than this dude. So I called him, and he came over to our house, and he sat down with us. I just started pouring out my heart to him and saying, this is what I think God's doing, and, and, and I think that God's opening these doors, and, and this is what God wants me to do. And so he gave me incredible wisdom and, and confirmation about the fact that God was, in fact, opening up the door. 
And so um, 90% of the time someone asks me uh, about something, they've already made up their mind, right? <laughs> like, they've already made, they just want me to agree with it. No, he, he, I, just, I really wanted his opinion. And so he says, I, I just believe that's what God's calling you. And so here's, here's what he did. He goes, I'm giving you three weeks. In three weeks, I want you to preach on a Wednesday night. I ain't never preached in my life. And that Wednesday night rolled around. And I won't tell you, I was shaking in my boots. I thought to myself, you know, if I just get up there and pass out, they'll feel sorry for me and I won't have to follow through. I didn't pass out, but I made it through the message. And, and you know, Baptists are good liars. Great message. No, it probably was not. But what it did do is that God hammered confirmation. This is what I'm asking you to do. Number six, you have an internal enthusiasm. Because after that, I was fired up to do it, right? After I got out of the gate, scared to death, I was fired up to follow through. You have an internal enthusiasm. And the last one is you sense and see a grace on what you're wanting to do. God's presence plus opportunity plus resource is the grace that you sense, and it could be financial resources, people. Listen, when I step, watch this. When I stepped through the open door, I was giving up my job. My wife and I were moving to college. I had no parents paying for my college. We got to find a place to live. We, gotta have, we arrive on campus. We got no jobs. We have a place there on campus. We got to pay for college, pay for our, our room and board. But when I got there, it was just like... Um, God's grace, he just started giving us. So like in the first week, Marla found a job. That week, I found a job because there was a couple that was already there, and he worked in a grocery store, and he got me on there, and then I started working for the butcher in the grocery store. <laughs> I'd never been a butcher before, but I just actually cleaned the, the butcher shop, and so it worked well with my schedule. And so God just kept, in his grace, he just kept giving us things, right? And so then we find out about Charles B. Kazee Fund. That is a, a, a fund that if you, you know, they help pay for your college. If you stay in ministry seven years after you graduate, they cancel the note. Um, so that was, you know, that helped us greatly. In and so God's grace just kept pouring out. I'm just simply saying God wants you to go through open doors, and these are seven things that I have found that began to transpire, began to unfold as I was discerning, is this an open door of God or not? And that's one of the ways you know. And there, thirdly, notice the door of opposition. Do you know that whenever you are facing an open door, there's always going to be opposition? Wasn't it true for this church? He talks about the synagogue of Satan. Remember, those were the Judaizers who were trying to tell people, hey, you know, you're not doing it the right way. This is not the way God wants you to go. And so, you know, Satan is from the outside. There are going to be those who are going to try to deter you, deter you from stepping through that open door. Do you know that God, Satan uses people just like God does? So who does Satan use? He used my father. My father was very upset I was quitting a lucrative job, a lucrative um, career in order to go off and go to college. He, he accused my in-laws of brainwashing me, and he just couldn't understand. But my dad wasn't saved, so he just didn't understand any of this. And so he became the opposition. He says, I just can't believe you're doing this. And, and, and we, we had a really rough time for a, a while until he kind of settled in on that. And so that was the opposition that was brought against me 
externally. Sometimes the opposition is internal. That is, it's just, it's what is within yourself. Because for some of you, um, you live your life in an, an emotional paralysis. And what I mean by that is that you've been so hurt during the course of your lifetime, you're carrying around so much pain and so much agony that this, there's this emotional paralysis that doesn't allow you to function very well in the present. And so sometimes we get filled up with resentment and we're angry at God and God wasn't there for me when I was a child and you know I'm damaged goods and God can't use me and it won't happen for me. Here's what I note. Whenever you, you're having these experiences within you, again, it's the enemy coming against you. God, listen, God does want to use you. He can use you. He can do such miraculous things through you if you'll just step through the door of opportunity. But be, be, just know that there's going to bring some opposition. Even when Nehemiah led the people of Israel back to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem, there was opposition both from the outside and the inside. There was the Sanballat and Tobias who were standing out there saying, hey, you can't do this and come off that wall and we're going to have a discussion out here. And, and, and Nehemiah says, you all discuss it all you want. I'm going to stay on the wall and keep working for the Lord. And then the opposition came from the inside, those who were working alongside of him. There's always going to be opposition, but just know this, just because there's opposition does not mean that the door is closing. It's probably opening wider. And so times, when in the most difficult times of our lives is when who we really are begins to come out. You know, it's not hard to be faithful to the Lord when things are going well, whenever things are smooth and everything's in alignment, working well in your life, when there are no potholes in the road and everything is smooth. It's not hard to be faithful and, you know, kind and patient and loving and help somebody when everything is happy in your life, but when you get into a difficult, tough situation in your life, then the real us comes to the surface. And sometimes we become our own worst enemy. And we think that God has now disqualified us. No, he has not. God wants you to step through that door. And then there's a great promise that is attached to it the rewards that come to those who step through that door. You know how much the Bible has talked about crowns. There are five crowns that believers can earn as rewards, and certainly this is a, this is a crown that God has. He says for those, look, I'm coming soon. I'm going to hold you out of the test that the whole world's going to experience. He's talking about the tribulation, all right? The, the whole world's going to experience the tribulation of Christ. What happens before the tribulation? Jesus takes the church out of the world. All right, and so then out, when you're out of the world, you go to the judgment seat of Christ. Again, not to determine whether or not you're going to heaven or hell, but to receive the rewards for your faithfulness here on earth. And so there is a crown that can be won here it's a, it, to receive this crown. Um, and then there is the receiving of a place of honor. He says, I will make him a pillar. He will not leave it. And so in that day, pagan deities had their names ascribed on the pillars of their temples. And God's going to ascribe your name on the pillar of his temple. This is not a literal temple because um, there's going to be no temple in heaven. But he's describing here security or stability. It's a place of honor. Like if you go into the Texas Stadium in Arlington, Texas, you know where the Cowboys play? Hello? Right? Right? There is a ring of honor 
that's around that stadium. And the way you get your name inscribed on that ring of honor is not because you had a good game or a good season, but you had a good career. My favorite quarterback of all time, Roger Staubach, is on that ring of honor. That's what God is saying. He's saying, listen, over your career, over your time here on earth, you've been faithful to me, therefore I will place you on my ring of honor. And then he says, you're going to see three things on your forehead, a seal of God that's designated as a child of God, New Jerusalem, the name of our eternal home when New Jerusalem comes down to earth, and then the name of Jesus signifying your personal relationship with the Lord. He's talking about security here, the assurance of God's presence. Now I close with this. Some of people say to me all the time is, Greg, um, okay, I, I, I get this, understand this. What makes your religion different than mine or than anybody else's? I, I want you to capture this concept. Uh, I, I've been around a long time. I've heard enough to know all religions say that their God has the key, and all religions say that God is God, and who's in ch- their God's in charge, and yes, uh, you know, what is it that makes Christianity different? Because our God knows something that no other God knows, or God's. Plural. He knows all about open and shut doors. You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was to bear the cross and the realization of what he was about to suffer and the emotional and the physical pain hit him with a realization for the first time that there was going to be separation within the Trinity. And he puts his face in the dirt in the garden, and he says, Father, may you let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. If it's possible for this cup to pass from me, and he kind of bangs on the door of heaven with his forehead, if there's any other way, I do not want to take this, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. The door he was asking God to open remained shut. And the reason it remained shut is so that he could stand in our place as our Savior. What separates our God from every other God is that our God knows what it's like. You know what it's like to pray to God, I need you, I want you. God, you know how it feels like the doors of heaven are being locked against me. We have, only, we have the only God who can say, I know what that's like. We have a Savior who understands. I bang my head against the door of heaven, praying that God would open, shut it, and, and just do it another way. But he wouldn't open it. It's, it just remained shut. And so Jesus faced the ultimate locked door for us. And he took the wrath of God upon himself. If I have a Savior who has faced the ultimate locked door, then I have a Savior who knows what it's like when the door gets slammed in my face or gets slammed in your face. We know what it's like to have a Savior who has so much power, so much control, that he's not controlling, but he has control. What he opens cannot be shut. What he shuts cannot be opened. He understands.
That's the Savior I want to follow. That's the Savior I want to spend 21 days with, with no distractions, to find out what doors are you opening for us now. And I pray that you'll join me in that adventure. Let's bow our heads together.